This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning, Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point, and let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to be back home with all of you and back now experiencing a more normal travel schedule. We get pulled away from time to time, but every February is brutal as we are all over the place speaking into people's lives and encouraging healthy homes and healthy marriages. And it's good to be back. While um, I don't really care to be gone so much, This church is very blessed in the kind of guys that we have come in and speak while I'm gone. And I watch these guys while we're on the road, and there have been some amazing guys here over this last month or so that have been very proud. You're very blessed. We're all very blessed to have those kind of messages speaking into our lives. It's not like you get a bad version when I'm gone. Truth is, you get a better version when I'm gone. (laughs) That's okay. I'm secure. Not going anywhere. And again, good morning to those over in Appleton with uh, Pastor Joe filling in over there and uh, Pastor Bob over in Stevens Point, all of you guys. Actually, uh, um, we're getting ready to get in the final process of selecting our new pastor in Appleton. We're very excited about that. More to be told as we get closer to that. We are now in the uh, season of Lent. We're very excited now. Lent is the time that we prepare ourselves for Easter in the Christian calendar. Lent, actually, the word means spring, and it's tied into this idea of new life after the brutal winter. The timing's off for us here in Wisconsin, (laughs) because we still have brutal winter, but uh, you get the basic idea. New life, new beginnings. Actually, when we first went to Stevens Point, the church was called New Beginnings, because we were celebrating this idea of new life, and then we changed the name to Celebration Church when we started the campuses. So anyway, during this time of Lent, uh, as we focus in, and we want to encourage you, uh, on Monday mornings, we're encouraging people to have a special time of prayer uh, here in Green Bay and in Stevens Point. The church is open for a time of prayer at 6 a.m. Obviously, we don't have a building yet in uh, Appleton, but you can certainly pray 
on your own and join with us, or if you can't make it in, certainly take the time to just do a, a time of focusing and gathering and thinking as we prepare our hearts during this time of new beginnings. Today, in keeping with this idea of newness of life, I want to speak to you about what it means to be having a new life in the spirit. It's called, Jesus referred to it as being born of the spirit. We read about this in John, the third chapter. And uh, starting with verse one, it says, now there was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders of the day, his name was Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night which is kind of interesting. He's kind of sneaking around when nobody quite sees that he's there, which actually is very common for people when they're first coming to, towards Christ in faith. They kind of sneak around and kind of looking around and checking it out gingerly because you're not quite sure. God somehow is pulling on your heart, your mind. You're starting to think about these sorts of things. <clears throat> Maybe you're here this morning watching us on the internet around the world uh, over at our campuses in Pointer Appleton. Um, and thinking, you know, wow, why, why am I even here? <laughs> well, you're here because God is drawing you here. And he's trying to get your attention and something new is happening. The very beginning steps of faith in your life. And uh, this is what happens with Nicodemus. And after the crowds and everything have settled down, he kind of sneaks in and it's nighttime. And he comes up and uh, engages in conversation with Jesus. And so he comes in at night. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, which, which means teacher, they, they, they refer to the religious leaders of, as rabbis. Um, and he says, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Uh, he was recognizing that God was doing something. One of the first steps of faith comes when uh, God starts opening our eyes to the supernatural. And sometimes God will do different things to get people's attention that start drawing them to himself. Many of us had this experience, and it varies wildly. Some people, um, it might be an event in your life. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and the reason you're even thinking about faith is you kind of come to the end of your road, but you know there's something more. You can sense maybe you think back, man, I, sh I should have been killed in that accident, and I wasn't. I mean, I always have these different stories. Something starts happening and start realizing there's something bigger than me. And it comes in all kinds of different forms. I remember some years ago uh, reading uh, a story about some guy. He was in one of these countries that faith was, you know, and God was uh, forbidden. And all his life he grew up in, uh, I think it was a communist country, and they never told him anything about God, didn't know anything about it. And, uh, but this kind of thing started happening to him. He realized there was something more. And in this particular case, it was a fascinating story, reading it. He says he was kind of a scientist, and he was fascinated with the thumb and, uh, and why human beings have thumbs. Nobody else, no other critters on earth have an opposable thumb that allows us to grab things and do things, you know. And he was so fascinated, and he knew that, wow, there must be a God that did that. And he wrote in his story, he says, I just started worshiping the God of the thumb. <laughs> and he didn't know what it was. And, and then somehow, whatever happened, he found himself in a situation where he started hearing the gospel preached for the very first time. And he immediately thought to himself, it's him. It's the thumb God, <laughs> the creator of the universe. And he comes to faith. I mean, who knows why people come? But they all come for a variety of reasons. 
And Nicodemus was kind of being struck by some of the things that he was seeing in Jesus' life, and, and he's checking into it. And Jesus cuts right to the chase in verse 3. Jesus replies to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, you know, if most of us here, or the majority of us here have heard the concept, even a lot of people who haven't been part of church have heard this idea of being born again. But when, Nicod- when Jesus said this to Nicodemus, no one had ever used that phrase before. I mean, what, what does that even mean? And uh, Nicodemus was kind of taken back by it. And he says, asked Jesus, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Putting aside that disgusting visual for a moment. Um, And Jesus says to him, no, no, no. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. He said, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Particularly this guy, he's a religious leader. He should have a clue about some of these things, which Jesus will challenge him about here in just a minute. But this idea that there, he's talking about a spiritual birth. Now, why is this significant? Now, I've used this analogy many times and will till the day I die. It really explains in a nutshell what is happening and has happened in the human race. The Bible teaches us that we are born in, and made in the image of God. God created human beings in the image of God. Um, and, and what is God? God is a triune being, three but yet just one. Uh, I had someone the other day uh, new to the church as well. What, what is the Trinity? I don't quite understand it. It's a concept too difficult to grasp. So no, it's not. We, we see it all the time in front of us in one of the most basic of elements of human life, and it's water. Water is nothing but H2O. No matter how you look at it, that's all it is, H2O. And if it gets cold enough, which many of you around the world don't quite get, but here in Wisconsin, it's a real reality to us, that water turns into ice. And it is hot. And we're not talking just little ice cubes in a glass here. We're talking sheets thicker. We can drive semi-trucks on the ice around here in the dead of winter. That the rivers and the lakes turn into concrete of this cold, powerful, heavy thing called ice. And if you look very closely at ice, it's only one thing. It's H2O. But it looks totally different than water. But they're exactly the same thing. And if it gets hot enough, it turns into to steam and floats about and releases actually great power. Many, even to this day, there's huge machines and stuff that are driven and powered by steam. Big ships are still powered, many of them, by steam. It's a very powerful force, uh, and you get too close to it or get consumed by it, it'll kill you. It's, it's brutal steam. But, and the amazing thing is, at the end of the day, if you look at steam from a scientific standpoint, it is one thing and one thing only, H2O. We see this triune thing right in front of us all the time. God is the same way. And he made all of us in his image. We are actually three parts. Body, soul, intellect, and spirit. Now what happened in the beginning when mankind basically told God to stick it and wanted to go his own way, thought he'd figure things out, he fell into what is called sin. And at that moment, mankind became spiritually dead. Our spirit, the Adam Adam and these spirits died at that point. Uh, And then every man, woman has ever been born, ever since then, 
is born technically, spiritually stillborn. We are born physically, mentally, but our spirit is dead. And this is the human condition. And that's why virtually everybody throughout history, if they've reflected at all for a moment, realizes something's not quite right. Something's not right. And this is what has driven men and women to seek after things to try and fix what's not right. Uh, some have, uh, it's been the birth of all the different types of religions around the world because mankind is trying to find God. Well, how do I fix this? What's, what's wrong? And they come up with their theories and their stru structures and prayers and incantations, all these things. All they're trying to fix. What's wrong in here? How do I get this right? Others turn to things that kind of numb this sensation. Drugs, alcohol, everybody, you know, doing these different things. They're trying to fix what's missing. Others think, well, if I just attain more things, then that will fix it. Money, wealth. But no matter what they do, it still doesn't fix it. Only one thing fixes it. It's when you come to Christ in faith and by his miraculous power, he breathes into us and your spirit comes alive. This is referred to as being born again. Those of us who have experienced this know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a life-changing experience. Now, for some people, it's really rather dramatic. Others, not as dramatic. It doesn't really matter how dramatic it is or isn't for you, but we know that you know that you know when it has happened to you. And this is what we are called to, called to come to faith in Christ so that we might be made whole. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect. In fact, Christianity is different than every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, you've got to do things, you've got to learn things, you've got to go through their studies and everything so that you can eventually touch God. Their hope is to touch God. Christianity is exactly the opposite. When you come to faith in Christ, you are immediately touched by God and you experience God immediately. And you don't know jack squat. <laughs> it's like a baby who's born, doesn't know anything. And then we start to learn and stuff. So it's the complete opposite. We don't do these things trying to experience God. We start out experiencing God. Does that mean that we're all perfect? Other than Deanna? No. No one else is perfect in this place. All right? We all struggle. We all have our issues. We all still kind of like babies kind of learning to walk. And you know what they do a lot was fall. And then they get back up again. And that's the same kind of experience many of us in a spiritual sense. So that's what Jesus is talking about, about being born again. Now Nicodemus says to him, how can this be? And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, you're Israel's teacher. And you don't understand these things. And then uh, Jesus starts using an analogy that Nicodemus should relate to. He's a Jewish rabbi, and they study, obviously, the Old Testament. And Jesus refers to an event in the Old Testament when he says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What is he talking about? This is the snake story. Let's go back and look at the snake story. This is in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse 4. Talk about the children of Israel. Okay, now they've gotten out of Egypt and they are wandering in the wilderness with the goal to get into the promised land. So it says that they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Can't imagine people getting impatient. 
They spoke against God and against Moses and say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So they're whining that he drugged them out of Egypt. These are the same people who for 400 years cried out to God, set us free. Tell Pharaoh to let your people go. God deliver us from slavery. And finally, God, in a dramatic way, sends Moses and gets them all out. And they're not out hardly any time at all before they're whining that they're out. There's something wrong with us. I'm telling you, there's something wrong with the human condition. We love to bellyache about everything. You know, as Americans, we're famous for bellyaching. We live in the best, greatest country the world has ever seen. And even we bellyache about stuff. I mean, it's just, <laughs> we got issues. And uh, so this happens to them. God does this incredible miracle. And it's not very long at all before they're whining about their situation. Now, they had it pretty good. God is taking care of them, providing for them. They get up in the morning. They don't even got to make breakfast. It's just there on the ground, manna from heaven. And it's the sweet wafers that they ate. Uh, so anyway, they said, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? See, their version, we're just going to die. No faith. They had no faith at all. And, we need, and, and the New Testament warns us, don't be like these people. Don't get frustrated because your life is still difficult or that you're still struggling. See, the mistake that they made, I think, they thought, once we get out of Egypt, we're going to be on easy street. Everything's going to be great. Piece of pie. And I don't think, and of course they were wrong because they still had to struggle through life even though God was doing great things for them. Don't think that once you become a born again Christian that all of a sudden now I'll never have another problem. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? How many of you, since you've come to faith, have experienced problems? All you sinners out there. Yes, all right. So we all have problems. We all experience stuff. Uh, and, and then sometimes people get discouraged. We don't get discouraged. It's just life. All right, this isn't heaven. We're on our way to heaven. So they're whining and belly aching. They say, there's no bread. There's no bread. Where's the bread? There's no water. I'm thirsty. And we detest this miserable food. Well, you can imagine how God is viewing this. Here he does this amazing thing and getting those people where Pharaoh lets them go because of all these plagues. I mean, there's miracles going on like, you know, you got to go to the theater to see these kind of miracles on a screen to even imagine what was going on. Gets them out of there. Gives them this food and pretty soon they're like, oh, we're tired of this miserable food. Well, the Lord was a little irritated by it all, as one can well imagine. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they were biting the people. Many Israelites died. And immediately the people realized what was going on. They had sinned. And the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord told Moses, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a snake and put it up on a pole. I call it snake on a stick. And anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. This is how they were cured. They would look up on this uh, snake on this pole, this bronze snake, and instantly they would be healed. So that's what happened. Moses makes a bronze snake, put it on the pole. Whenever anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the snake and they lived. Now, this is really a, a fascinating thing. Um, and I was talking to a, a pastor earlier this week. He says, it's kind of odd that Jesus would use the analogy of a snake because the snake was the problem. And Jesus said, just like the snake, I will be lifted up and 
What's he saying? Jesus becomes the problem? And actually, in a sense, he does. See, Jesus took on himself the sins of the world. He becomes our snake. And if we will look up to him in faith, this is what leads us to this miracle that transpires about being born again. It's faith. We believe by faith that things change, that things happen. That's what this whole thing is about. Uh, not only internally, but as we pray for people, we believe God changes things. Now, I've been uh, lately using this phrase to explain what Celebration Church is. I, I call it a convergent church. Deanna says, why do you keep using that word all of a sudden? Because it took me 20 years to find the word, <laughs> to figure it out. Uh, well, we started back in Stevens Point 20 years ago, uh, and then came to Green Bay uh, 15 years, or five years later. Um, uh, I never quite figured out, you know, how do you describe the kind of church we are? We're a little different than everybody else. And I thought, we must just be one of the weirdest churches. Well, we probably are. But, uh, but then finding out more and more that there's churches all America, or across America who are doing exactly the same thing as we are. And what does that mean? Uh, what a convergent church is about today is they take the three major streams of the Christian experience. The evangelical, which is based on scripture. The charismatic, which is based on experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. And liturgical elements based on uh, Christian practices that have been happening for 2,000 years. And, and really back, uh, most of the things that we connect with are things that uh, the early church did. This is 300 years, the first 100 to 300 years of Christianity. Some people say, well, well that's, that's just all Roman Catholic. Nay, nay, I say unto thee. They do it, but that's because they picked up on that. Roman Catholics didn't come along till. Six, seven, eight hundred years later. Um, this is stuff that happened early on. All Christians did these things. They did the Lord's Prayer. They said the Apostles' Creed. They practiced baptism. They um, uh, did communion when they would gather together. All these same kind of elements. Uh, and that's what we do. We take these elements and we blend it all together. And apparently, as I was reading a month or so ago, the word for that is convergent. <laughs> And they take these three streams and they blend them together. It's what we've always been doing, right? And the differences between any of these churches is just how they blend the three streams and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and hardcore uh, uh, evangelicals don't like some of the sacramental things and say, you're, you're just a bunch of Catholics. And, and I think, have, have you ever been to a Catholic church? No, we're not exactly a Catholic church, okay? Uh, or... Uh, uh, we're too charismatic, or the charismatic think we're too much this. And this. You know, these are the three streams that, that people experience in Christianity. What we've done is we have taken, I believe, the best of all three and put them together, and this is how we worship. This is who we are, and this is what we do. Now, one of the things that we believe, uh, primarily from a charismatic standpoint and even a liturgical standpoint, is that when we pray, things happen. Things change. Uh, in a way... Uh, our charismatics and liturgical people are similar in this sense. In the liturgical people, what they believe is in these sacraments, that things happen during these sacraments. It's not just something we do. God does something in them. And uh, charismatics understand this because we understand about laying hands on people and praying for people because this happens. Things change. Uh, when uh, Paul was uh, praying for people to get healed, people would come and they would put cloths that he would touch. And then they would take the cloths he touched and take them to six people, sick people, and they would be healed. How's that possible? Something happened. What happened? I don't know. Something. 
You know, did it keep happening forever? Probably not. They still have these in boxes somewhere. <laughs> you know, but for a, for a temporary time, for a moment, these things change. That's what we believe. You know, it's like when we take communion, we believe God does something as we reflect on the body and the blood of Christ. Of course, then, you know, pinheaded theologians and scientifically minded Western people say, well, what happens exactly at communion? Does it, does it literally become the body and blood? Or, or is it just symbolic? Is this a case of transubstantiation? People just think too hard. Seriously, they give me a headache. You know, I don't think when Jesus was handing the bread to the disciples, they were asking, so is this a case of transubstantiation or not? You know, I just think they took it. You know what I'm saying? It's something, something you just do. You just do by faith. You don't have to overanalyze everything. When somebody prays for exactly what's happening, are, are, you know, like Holy Spirit bugs coming on me and fixing my body. You know, just, just stop trying to analyze everything. You just do these things by faith. But we believe by faith that God does things and changes things. Somebody say amen. Yeah. Now that's not to say, I mean, in this life, we believe, we believe in healing. We believe that you're sick, uh, you get people to pray for you, lay hands on you, that you can be healed. Now, that's not to say that people will not die someday. Everybody dies and stuff like that. But we believe in healing. And uh, actually, I, I, one of the things I want to start doing is having some special healing services that we do. That Some of you are really struggling physically if you're really sick and you got the flu and you think it's the coronavirus or whatever, you know, whatever. And even if you have the coronavirus, come. Say, so would you lay hands on me? Yeah. Why? I believe something happens. Aren't you afraid of that? No, not really. What's the worst thing that can happen? I die and go to heaven. You know, that's the worst thing that can happen. And from a practical standpoint, now this, you know, relax, okay? So some people are dying, I understand it. Last year, 61,200 people died from the flu. Did you hear anything about it? Most of you haven't, most of you are shocked by the number I just told you. This is what happens every year. People die. Usually they're much older people who are very weak and that's exactly the kind of people who are dying from the coronavirus. Most young people who get it, they get sick. Some get it, I was reading this the other day, get it and have no symptoms at all. They just have it, which is kind of weird. So if I get it, I hope that's my version <laughs> where nothing happens. But if I'm too much of a geezer and I gotta go, it's time to go, then I will go. But I'm not gonna walk around in fear and paranoia. Amen. Amen. And besides, it's, the, it's about the same rate of death as the flu. On the high end, it's a 2% mortality rate. That means if you get it, you have a 98% chance of being absolutely fine. From this, people are afraid to go out the door. It's just crazy, you know. So you know, that's my 10 cents. If I die next week from the coronavirus, please disregard everything I just said. <laughs> he shouldn't have said that, should he? <laughs> Let's go to the funeral, see how that goes. Yeah, you never know, right? Life. But Jesus becomes the snake. He becomes the problem for us. We read in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 21, God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest transaction in eternity. What God says, if you'll come to me in faith, I will take everything that's wrong with you and give you everything that's right about me. Man, how do you say no to that deal? You know? I mean, if I came across a multimillionaire, which I am not, I would like to be, pray for me. But if, if I was a multimillionaire and I came to you and said, listen, I want to make a trade. I want to take all of your debt and in exchange, I'm going to give you all my money. How long would you ponder this question? I'm not sure. Man, you'd jump on that right away, instantaneously. Well, that's what God is offering to all of us today. If you've never come to faith in Christ, that's the greatest deal you'll ever see. Every wrong you've ever done, he'll take. And everything right about him, he will give to you. He becomes the snake. And we will look up at the snake. We're healed by faith, born again, new life. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, God places on him the sins of the entire world. Can you imagine what that felt like? Now, it's a stupid question, but have you ever done anything bad? <laughs> I have on occasion. Done things I shouldn't do, or say things I wish I hadn't said. And I just feel terrible. You ever feel terrible? If you don't, you are what we call, what's the word? Psychopath. psychopath. <laughs> Thank you. You're a psychopath. Psych literally, a psychopath is someone who does that and they never feel bad for no matter what they do. They can take cats, throw them in the oven, watch them burn alive, and they just they have no response. They can take people, torture them, kill them. They're psychopaths. They never feel bad. You ever do something you feel bad? Man, I have. And sometimes if you really feel bad enough, you can hardly breathe. You just, you know what I'm talking about? You just got this weight of dread. and uh, uh. Imagine what Jesus felt like when he took on all the guilt of the world. It must have felt horrible. In fact, I believe that's what killed him. Crucifixion was a brutal way to go. But why it was particularly brutal is it took you a long time to die. Sometimes days. Well, when you bleed out, no, the little hole, there wasn't, they didn't hit anything vital. You wouldn't even bleed out. You would just hang there. And you'd, you'd wink, legs would get so tired and then you, you can hardly breathe and suffocate. You push yourself back up. And as long as you could keep pushing up to get a gasp of air, you kept breathing. And the pain and the misery of it all, it was a brutal way to go. And when they crucified Jesus and the two thieves with him, they're trying to wrap things up. They want to get in a hurry because normally it takes a long time for people to die. So they go over and they break the legs of the two thieves. Why? Because they could be there for who knows how long before they would die. And by breaking their legs, they can no longer push up and then they suffocated and died. They came to Jesus to break his legs, but to their surprise, he was already dead. He cried out, it is finished. No doubt, though, can you imagine? And seriously, some of us can. Some of you, even right now, are still dealing with guilt and depression and heaviness for things done in the past. Some of you can hardly breathe. I got good news for you this morning. Jesus will take all that from you. He will if you just give it to him. But this is what fell on him of the entire world. 
he became the snake so that we could look up to him and have life. And this is then where uh, it has the next words in our story. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, like looking up to the snake on that stick, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Even though sometimes you feel bad, you need to understand, as Christians, you never have to be condemned. Condemned means you're doomed. There's no way out. There's no hope for you. If you're condemned to die, they march you to the death chamber. It's over for you. There's no out. And I got news for you. No matter how bad you feel, no matter what awful things you've done, there's no condemnation for you if you'll put your trust in Christ. God can handle whatever struggles that you've had. God didn't come into the world to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm going to ask our ushers at our campuses as well as here to get ready to come and serve us communion this morning. Um, And now we want to take a chance to reflect on what we've just heard. Uh, What the scriptures encourage us to do is to reflect before we take communion. In his epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. What does that mean? This is our weekly checkup. Where are you at? How have you done this last week? Have you made mistakes? Undoubtedly, most of us have. Have you done things you shouldn't have done? Have you avoided things that you should do? I want us all to bow our heads in a word of prayer as we come now reflecting on the cross of Jesus' body being broken for us, his blood being shed for us. And I want to pray a prayer of forgiveness. And and, uh, let's all bow our heads for us here now. Heavenly Father, before we take of the bread and the cup this morning, in obedience to the scriptures, we pause for a moment now to examine ourselves. If we've sinned against you in thought, word, or deed, maybe something that we've done, maybe something we, we didn't do, if we haven't loved you like we should, if we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves, whatever struggles we've had this last week, for the sake of your beloved son Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, have mercy on us and forgive us of all our sins. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of your Holy Spirit keep us in eternal life that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And as every head still bowed, if you're new to faith or maybe you've never taken that step of asking Christ into your life and being born again, I want to encourage you right now just quietly as your heads are bowed, just in your own words, ask Jesus to forgive you and invite him to come into your life. 